This is a Stand Up Labs production, powered by digital media. I'm driving along with two Jewish people on my fender. There's a law in New York State. I sang once for Barbara Streisand, this is a true story, and her eyes crossed the other way. It was... Well, the first thing I do is make them toast my salad. From the writer of... And the director of... Comes you can have an eight-way suck fest up in your room, but you can't walk barefoot to the casino. I want a lemon twitter, I want a raspberry puff, I want a honey curl, and a, a, a no, two chocolate, no, one, one, put it back, put it back. I can loosen up. Don't have to be so black all the time. I hate when my foot falls asleep during the day, because that means it's going to be up all night. My neck is actually six inches long, completely flaccid. It don't matter about how much you sniff, put it away, sniff the interest. We're going to have to buy more stuff. Welcome, everyone. Uh, very excited about uh, this week's episode. A very dear friend of mine and one of my favorite stand-up comics. It's actually a guy that I saw him do stand-up, and I saw him host his own show, and I always wanted to meet him. And uh, along the way, I had heard that he wasn't that friendly. And, you know, I've heard that a few times. Then you meet someone, and they're great. Uh, this was a guy I heard was not that friendly, and it was a shame because I loved his comedy so much. So I'm working at Nick's Comedy Stop in Boston, and we're doing a show. I'm on the show. Uh, my next guest is on the show, and uh, Nick DiPaolo and Bill Burr. And the three of us, Bill, Nick, and I had already been on, and we're in the back of the room. We're watching Alan Havey, and he was masterful, a great comedian. Just, you know, just it was, it's, it was going to school for us. And... All three of us were just in amazement about how funny this guy was. And I said, you know, it's a shame that he's supposedly not that nice of a guy uh, because he's so funny. And uh, he finished his set and he came to the back where we were all sitting and he shook my hand and said, my God, Eddie Brill, you're a really funny comedian. I always wanted to meet you and I love your work. And, uh, you know, I don't know what you're doing now, but you'd like to go out for dinner. And I was like, sure. And he goes to the bathroom and Nick DiPaolo and Bill Burr goes, yeah, Who's the asshole? You're the asshole. He's a great guy, and now you're going to dinner with him. So shut up, you asshole. And they were right. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever met. So don't listen to what people say about people. Uh, I'm, I hope you're excited as I am to listen to uh, Alan Havy. Um, welcome to uh, this uh, new podcast thing, and you're really my second person in here, which is great for me. It's new for you, but the new right. podcast thing, it's, it's, it's out there, baby. I waited until it was completely dead, and then yeah. I decided to join in the ranks, because I've done about 60 of them myself. I'm waiting and, for the resurgence right. in like 2037. This is the surgeons right oh, now. Is it? This is the surgeons, okay. the end of the, the surgeons. The resurgence will be uh, in about a year from now when this thing runs, which will be nice. So what I'm doing here that's different than all the other ones is I'm talking and asking the questions as opposed to answering the questions. This oh, good. is different than good. anything I've done before. Yeah, I have friends like that. I've tried to squeeze them out of my life. Right. You say, hey, they ask you a question. Then you start to say, is it this, this, this? Well, oh, okay, what, is this a, a quiz show? Right. You know, if you get it right, I give you a cookie. I was watching the Mets, uh, New York Mets play, and they have a guy named Steve Gelb, and he's the guy that you go to in the stands. And he interviews people, but he does the whole, he answers the question in the question he asks the guy. The guy doesn't even need to be there. Yeah. And, uh, he could talk to Mr. Met. Yeah. <laughs> Get the same response. Mm -hmm. All right. 
about you. I know this about you without even looking it up. I knew you're from St. Louis because I follow your uh, fervor for the St. Louis Cardinals. Absolutely. How long did you live in St. Louis? Just till I was two. That's all. Yeah, we're raised in Miami. Right. And then 1964, uh, because Miami was all about Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle and the Yankees, mm-hmm. and uh, they were the big heroes of baseball of that era. And I, uh, I heard that Mickey Mantle was going to be in the World Series. I went and told my dad, I go, hey, yeah, Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle in the World Series. You know? and, and he said, yeah, but they're playing uh, my Cardinals uh-huh. at St. Louis. You know, that's your hometown, and I never heard that you know, applied to me, my hometown, because really, I, I really only remember Miami. And I said, yeah, but, Dad, it's the New York Yankees. It's Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle. He goes, well, I'm going to root for the Cardinals. You can root for whoever you want. So I decided to go with my dad and my hometown. And I was the only kid at school right. that uh, rooted for the Cardinals, and they won in seven games. And that they was did. it, man. That was a great series. Yes, it was. And then 68 was another great series against the Tigers. Let's go to 67 first. Okay. When they beat Red Sox. Okay, now. All right. All right. Yeah, 67 was, well, 68 that was, that was, was a horrible series. Right? The Jim yes. Lorenberg. Okay. And uh, 68 was the against the Tigers. And uh, that was... Horrible series. It was a horrible series for you. But for me as a kid, it was uh, there was the Jewish holidays. And I didn't really grow up following that. But my parents said, you know, you can't watch the World Series. It's a Jewish holiday. And I said, I don't care. It's baseball. It's the World Series. And I snuck in the Gibson game where he was just ridiculous. And, yeah. and I was 17, 18 strikeouts. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, and before that, years before that, Sandy Koufax. Right. That's when I first heard about what Yom Kippur was and that mm-hmm. he, could, he couldn't eat. Right. And I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> These Jewish people, I thought they love food, you know. And so he's too weak to pitch. So that was kind of interesting that baseball kind of makes you aware of, of the rest of the world. You know, I didn't know in 69 when the Mets, my team, they won the World Series on my birthday. In '69, the seventh game. Um, the, it was sixth game. No, the fifth game. They the Mets won it in five. Yeah, October 16th. Over Earl Weaver and the Orioles, who, who were heavily favored. Yes, they had both Robinsons, Frank and Brooks, and uh, the you Miracle know. Mets. Yeah, Swoboda, the Magic Catch, and they had two polish. Jewish fellows, guys. Two. Well, Cleon, yeah, Cleon Jones was the the shoe polish thing. They got Don Clendenin from the Pirates that year, who won the MVP. Uh, Welcome but, to baseball talk with yeah, Eddie. I know baseball uh, bro. But I enjoy you know you're you know I'm ravenous about baseball and I know you are too. But I just remembered that Al Weiss and uh, Art Chamsky were this is Jewish baseball talk. Right. Took off because it was Yom Kippur around the time of the World Series, and that's how I kind of learned about it. As and they well. still won. Yeah. Despite these, that was fun times. It was. So uh, then you went to Miami, which seems to be a place where a lot of comedians come from. Brian Regan, uh, Jeff Garland, Todd Barry, myself. I grew up in Hollywood, Florida, even though I was born in New York. I went to high school in Hollywood at Chaminade. Ah. Yeah. I went to South Broward High School. Okay. Uh, David Shula went to high school uh, at the same time at Chaminade when we played them. And uh, Don would come, Shula would come to the games. And uh, so, Maybe I'll get discovered. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> you never know. And I was the announcer. Of the high school. I used to do a Howard Cosell impression. I went to South Broward High School, so I was Broward Cosell. And I got to meet Don Shula years later, working at a Super Bowl, and he said, Broward Cosell, how are you? I remember you. Wow. Because I made a big deal about him being in the stands. and Were you the, the public address announcer? Yeah. Oh, okay. Broward Cosell. It was a much better impression back then. 
So, okay, so now you're in Miami, and tell me about comedy in your early years when you first saw it on television, probably on The Tonight Show, maybe uh, some other Yeah, show. or Merv Griffith, but it was really, my father would wake me up when I was eight years old to watch Johnny Carson, mm -hmm. and so that's where I really kind of really watch uh, comedy and the Jack Parr show with Jonathan Winters. Ah, Jonathan Winters, yes, everything. The, he was our personal favorite, and Gleason. The Jackie Gleason show mm -hmm. before it came down to Miami when it was still in New York, but uh, my first experience performing was in kindergarten. Mm. Uh, I went to a Catholic school, and uh, these two eighth grade boys brought in this huge tape recorder into the class that day, and I saw the microphone, and I saw the the big wheels, you know, mammoth tape recorder, and uh, I said, oh, "This show business." Oh, this is television, or what, what is this? This is, and the nun said, everyone's going to get up and speak their name into the microphone, and we're going to play it back, and whoever's the loudest and the clearest is going to play the priest in the uh, graduation ceremony, like a little priest, and the, the girl that does it is going to play the nun. And so I was in the, the corner in the back, which I always tried to stay in school, because those nuns would come at you. You know, you wanted to see them coming so you could brace yourself. <laughs> And uh, they played it back, and my name was cl clearly the loudest. I mean, it was just beautiful, and everybody looked at me, and I nailed my first audition. Mm. So I played the little priest, and uh, the girl that played the uh, nun got sick. So you I, played the nun as well? I told, I went up to the nun, I go, I can do both parts. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where I got this moxie. It was, and... I, I kind of realized, oh, she can't handle the pressure or whatever it was. it was. All this was going through my mind in kindergarten. And I was so excited, and I had a little priest outfit, and I did it. And this is 1960. I'm 61 years old now. And right. adults were looking at me and smiling. And this is when children were seen and not heard. You know, adults would be nice, and then they'd move on. They were in their old world, so this is very heady. And a priest came up and patted me on the head, Father Brush, that was his name, mm -hmm. and said, he was almost as good as I was. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and everybody laughed and everybody was smiling. And I, I guess I flubbed my lines and they thought it was cute, you know. But I think that's what did it. And then uh, my first joke at the dinner table, uh, when Kennedy, it was around the same time, mm -hmm. Kennedy was elected. And we, my mom made uh, fried chicken. It was uh, January 20th, inaug right. inauguration day. And so 61, I guess. Cause yeah, he, 19, well, yeah, the election year is 61. Right. You're going to get technical on me, Eddie? I'm, I'm all excited here. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't have a day timer back then. <laughs> I have a watch that has 61 on it. Oh, that's probably for uh, a mantle. Uh, yeah. Uh, again. With an Sorry. asterisk. Yes. So uh, my mom made this great fried chicken dinner. She's a great cook, and we're sitting there, and my dad says, all right, we have a new president. And it might, um, you know, he, <laughs> that's he, how he, she started? No. All right, now. No, all right, my, kids. My dad. <laughs> He, after, you know, at, toward the end of di dinner, he liked to make these pronouncements or speeches. I he was can a, tell. And, uh, you know, with the Cardinals, he made sure that he let you know. Absolutely. We're in Miami, we're rooting for the Cardinals. Mm -hmm. he, he made announcements and pronouncements. And my, uh, my mom goes, Charlie, stop. Uh, Bernice, damn it. Uh, let me say this. He goes, you boys, you, there was one piece of fried chicken left. We, his name is John F. Kennedy, and if you can tell me what the F stands for, you can have the last piece of chicken. Wow. And I knew it was Fitzgerald, but I just popped out. I go, Fidel? Yeah. You know, and my parents lost it. 
They loved that joke. It was my first joke. And I got the, the piece of chicken. That's great. You so, got it wrong, but you got it right. And that's a, it, it, being funny is better than being right. Yeah. So I got that. Uh, I didn't have to do, you know help with the dishes or anything. And I would go up and repeat it to him later. And my dad said, no, no, a joke only works once. You can right. sing a song all the time. A joke only works once. But they still like the fact that I felt value in being funny. So after that, it was very important for me to be funny in class, at home any way I could as a kid. So that was my first big break. Yes, I could see that. And I could tell that your father enjoyed comedy so much that he, he would wake you so you could watch comedy. Yeah, I was awake, at, you know, anyway. But, right. You know, but yes. But he'd grab you and say, let's watch comedy together. And how many parents would do that? And most parents would say, time to go to bed. Mm-hmm. Can I stay up and watch the, the comedy? No, it's time for you to no, go to so bed. Eleven thirty at night. Right. It was never on a school night. And it was an hour and a half back then. So yeah, but I never. I'd watch the monologue and maybe a first guest, and he'd send me mm-hmm. to bed. I you know. You. I think my my dad. I know he was a frustrated performer. I think that's what he wanted to do. He got married, moved to Miami. You know, had to raise four kids, and uh, I think later on, when I uh, started becoming successful, a few years before he died, he was very proud of me, but also a little jealous. Mm, my mom mentioned that too. How did your mom uh, treat you? Good. Well, you know, good mom. But I think, I think she was a little envious of what I was experiencing. She passed away right around when I was doing that talk show in the early 90s. Right. And she flew up to New York one weekend, and I took her to my HBO special premiere. Then the Letterman people came, hey, can you do Letterman tomorrow night? So I took her to that. Right. And then we were on, I got her tickets to take her to Regis Kathy Lee, and she won the thing where they call out the number. Right. She won that. So she had a great great weekend she didn't really talk about it much but then when i heard she went back home that's all she'd talk about you know so uh my mom was could be a little bit hard you know but probably um, supportive behind your back oh oh it yeah it sounds like it they they supported me they went and saw my plays in college uh i was a theater major Did but they you, never encouraged me they didn't say hey you can do this mm. one person did a friend of the families i i knew their kids we went to school together william bizjack and she came and saw me at a play when I was in college. And she said, very calm, she goes, I can see you making a living at this. Mm. That's all I needed to hear. Right. That, that I mean, I was going to do it anyway, but that really gave me confidence. You That's know? great. Did you ever do, I, I think I, we talked about this, but I don't remember. Did you ever do The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was? I have a one-man show about that. I don't talk about it. It's okay. a one-man show. Go see the one-man show. Yeah. Whenever it comes out, I'm right. not in any hurry. All right. That's all right. So, all right. So, that's a nice little plug for that. But I, I got Letterman and Carson in the same week. Ah. I, I heard the news. I was going to do Letterman first, then Carson. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, that's a teaser yeah. for what's about to happen. Now, that's this was, you did Late Night with David Letterman. You were on the, the NBC show. Yeah, November 13th, 1986. No one forgets. No, they yeah. don't forget that. Yeah, and course. that's when I decided, it was booked a couple weeks before I go, 13 is going to be my lucky number. Mm. And ever since then, it has been. Yeah, me too. 2013 was one of my best years. 21 was my favorite because here we go back to baseball. I'm Clemente fanatic and nut for Clemente. You and but Hugh I, Fink. Yeah, yeah. we talked about comedian that. comedian writer, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he did this bit on Letterman about, hey, Bobby, come on, Bobby, when he's playing the third base coach. Mm-hmm. And Letterman would do that bit all the time, even when you think wasn't around. Um, and uh, so, yeah, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson was big for me, but it's great that you got to see the Jack Parr. Here's an interesting thing about Letterman and Jonathan Winters, because you mentioned Jonathan Winters. One, I didn't even know this, and I'd worked with Letterman for 17 years. is uh, About two years uh, before the show was over, 
somebody in the audience, you know, before the show, they asked questions to Dave, and somebody said, who's your favorite comedian? And without skipping a beat, he said, Jonathan Winters. Right. And uh, I wasn't shocked, but I didn't expect that answer. Because mm-hmm. uh, John, and so tell me about Jonathan Winters and and what made you laugh about Jonathan Winters? Well, he made it seem effortless. He had the you know, uh, and I remember my father and I crying, mm. literally crying with laughter. And he, I, I couldn't believe he just made it up. I, I felt that's what comedians did anyway. That they mm-hmm. came out there and they just kind of talked. I didn't know they had a planned routine or that they wrote it down as much as they did. And he just made it look effortless, and he did different voices, different characters. It was the depth of his, uh, the reservoir of what he could grab from. Uh, it, it just amazed me. You know, before I, you know, impressionists are great, but Jonathan could do dialects. He could do both genders, or now, like, they have three or four. Right. But it was... <laughs> he, he died in time before he had to add other genders. Yeah. And then years later, uh, Bob Shaw, a guy I write with, very funny comedian... Um, became friends with Jonathan through Richard Lewis, mm. and Bob invited me to lunch. He goes, yeah. I invite you. So I had lunch next to Jonathan Winters one day, and that was, that was great. That was only about two years before he passed. You know. Yeah. He said, are you married? I said, yes. He goes, where do you keep your wife? I go, she's in a trunk at home. <laughs> you know, and he laughed. Oh, so There you go. Yeah, it was great. It's just as good as that laugh you got when you uh, did the priest joke or the Fidel joke. Yeah. It never stops. It no. It never stops. You get your first laugh. It's like heroin. You chase it for the rest of your life. But it satisfies you. Yeah, which heroin bit. just, you know, doesn't. Yeah, or, or certainly coke. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, but, but when you make someone laugh, that has made you laugh. Like, yes. I, I know for a fact, Jonathan Warner's George Carlin, mm. Robin Williams, you know, just in conversation. When, you, when another comedian that you've admired laughs, like I was a big Seinfeld a fan when I first got mm-hmm. into uh, comedy, really admired the guy. We're the same age. I think I'm maybe three or four months younger, but he looks younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when, the, when I, I first made Jerry laugh. You know, that was like a thrill. You know, it, it, it's always good to make other comedians laugh. Yeah. I, I, you know, for me, one of the highlights was I went up to Phyllis Diller, who used to make me laugh harder than most people. And I said, Hi, my name. She goes, I know who you are. You're Eddie Brill. And that's all I needed. That was a thrill for me. Yeah. That, we, you don't realize that people, you know, are at home watching, and they kind of get who you are, you know. But I don't assume people know me. Yeah, I never do either. And I'm, and it turns out for me, I'm right. They don't know me. Well, sometimes they don't. Yeah. And But, you know, when you do stand-up, you, the mistake you could make is assume that everyone knows you. Assume that this audience seen you the show before, especially in the days when you're running around doing a bunch of different sets and you have a killer set, and then you run to another club. You have to start all over again from scratch to get their love. Now, the first time you I don't, did... I don't do it for their love. Uh, I don't yeah. give a crap about their love. Right. I just you can make curse. them laugh. <laughs> oh, I can? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. I, I, You know, I've done a lot of podcasts where I, I didn't ask at the beginning if I can say shit or something, and I'd said crap, and it just didn't seem sincere. Well, Unless your crap is sincere. I'm, you know, when I curse, I'm very sincere. I, I, could, I could see that. Thank you. All right. First time you did stand-up as a, as a stand-up comic. Uh, Singapore Hotel in Miami. I just wanted to do it to do it. I really wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. I, I, to be a comedian to me was forget about it, you know. Uh, in high school, I told my guidance counselor I wanted to be an actor, maybe a comedian. They go, you're out of your mind. <laughs> and then when I was a theater major before I left college, my guidance counselor said, did you ever think of going into stand-up? Really? Yeah, because I wanted to be an actor because you, you should try stand-up as well. And I'm like, mm, no way. 
But I, you know, there was something in me I wanted to do at once. So I went to the Singapore Hotel in Miami. It's on the beach. Uh, It'd be more interesting if you went to the Miami Hotel in Singapore yeah. to do your first ever stand-up. That would have been a better didn't story. Have the, didn't have the bucks. No. Sorry. So this story is not going to be it's good now? It's going to be on. fine. It'll be fine. Let me hear it. <laughs> the MC was Buddy Boylan <laughs> and uh, the Frankie Don Trio was the music. And Buddy Boylan was this old school New York comic with the jelly roll <laughs> and, and the pinky rings. And uh, he said... Uh, you know, I had long hair at the time. He said, "I right, uh, now the hair's fine. He goes, uh, kid, just do me a favor, no cursing. And he goes out there and he starts cursing <laughs> up the store. And he brings me up. And it was pretty. it was a pretty decent set. My first joke, it's kind of racist, but it's not really racist. It's a play on words. I said, you know, I'm not the only one in show business. My uncle is an author, and he wrote a book about Jackie Robinson uh, in his early days in baseball, and it's called A Negroes in Brooklyn. Nah. That was my first joke. That's, and... Yeah, it's yeah. outstanding. Look, you got to laugh. Yeah, I got to laugh from the lady yeah. here. Yeah. You have to know the good. book. Yes. And you have to know Jackie Robinson. And you have to know The Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And the that, whole, That's the book. That's the, the book? Grows. Yeah. Oh. And, and the movie. I, and they made a book out of the tree. Yes. From Brooklyn. But uh, it was an older crowd, and they got the joke. Yeah. And, and, I, and I saw the bartender laugh. <laughs> so that was my first laugh. Yeah. And it was about, you know, 18 senior citizens and... And I went back and did it once more again. But then when I went to New York, I didn't want to get into stand-up. How long did you do it in comedy in Florida before Just you? Just two times. That's it? That's it. And then you moved to New York on that? I'm, well, no. I moved to New York because I wanted to be an actor. I, wanted, I always wanted to move to New York ever How since I was How old were you when you started doing stand-up? Uh, 20, uh, well, I had a partner in college, so we uh -huh. did a duo. And we did it for a while in New York. I was 27, 26, 27. Right. You know, and... Uh, and I, I did it for a while, and I passed at the improv, and I quit for three months because it was mm -hmm. too hard. Then I got back in, and then I lost my waiting job and my uh, bartending job. And Silver Friedman, right? very important yes, too, at the improv, when she said, I want you to join our family. I went up and did a set. That was very big. But, uh, you know, I needed money, and she said, well, why don't you answer phones a few days a week here at the improv? Great. Great. Cause I, so I was there. She put me on the, the show more, and... You'd have bookers calling from out of you know Jersey or Connecticut. Hey, we need comedians, and I would say, well, this guy's good, and this guy, and this new guy, Alan Havey, right. is really good. And they didn't know who it was me. I said, not. if you want, if you want to put him on hold, I can call him right now, see if he can do the gig. So I put the guy on hold, go get a soda, wait a couple, call, you know, yep, he can do it. All That's right? great. So I was I was in that position, you know, to book myself, and then later on, I think people found out, hey, kid's got a lot of moxie, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So That's that great. was very fortuitous. That was a good break. Now, your, did your parents ever come see you do it? Yes. How was that for it was, you? It was oh, so nerve-wracking. Mm. Comic strip, 1983, mm -hmm. uh, and they brought 25 people with them from the parish. So these are people that had seen me grown up. Many of them had been in my first performance as, a, right, as a junior as priest. Young priest. And uh, I, they were nice enough to put me on in the middle of the show because then it was like three comics doing 25 minutes apiece. And uh, I, I did a great job. My father, uh, next day he said, I couldn't be prouder of you. So that's, that was great. Yeah, it's you. always have that, yeah. My father, the first time he saw me, laughed so hard because I was so nervous. And he laughed at my, how nervous I was. Right. So it wasn't laughter how funny I was. No. I sounded like the Bee Gees. My voice was quivering. And uh, and I sang. Who I started a joke, and uh, no, I didn't sing. But I did the thing, and I have a tape, a cassette tape of him laughing his ass off. The only person seeing his son bombing. vulnerable. And yes, 
Do, did you bomb? Um, I that night, yes. Yeah. The night because I, I was so nervous that he was there. Yeah. And I was in my head about it. I get nervous when anybody I know from mm-hmm. any aspect of my life. If I meet someone before a show, just accidentally, and they see it, I'm nervous. It's weird. I just went down to Fort Lauderdale. Did a few Catholic charities for Brian Kiley's brother. Right. Yeah, I've done those. Uh, yeah. Paul, who who books those. And yes, we we're talking about you, and I got to ask you a question okay. after the show. All right. Um, but ten women came from my grade school and high school to see me, and I could see them out there, and and it made me nervous because I wanted you want to do a good job, right? You know? And they had seen me on television and stuff, but uh, so they were very happy for me. Really meant a lot. They came out to see me. And it's something you said earlier about music and comedy. Music, you can just do the same song over and over again. And most of the time, you know, knock it down, set it up, knock it down. With comedy, you have to, there's a chance that one joke that works all the time is not going to work. Well, that, ha- that can happen all the time. Yeah, you know, all the time. So now, all of a sudden, you get to do, it's 1986, it sounds like, is a big year for you. I know 2013 was huge. But uh, 86, you, you know, you... You're getting these television appearances. You did a couple of HBO well, I, I specials, was Bill, didn't you? Uh, that was later. Oh, okay. This is, this so is what happened in 86? That uh, uh, Well, I'd been on the list at Letterman. I heard I'd been on the board at Letterman. Right. I, I didn't know there was a board, so I was excited about that. I right. just honed and worked my, my set, and probably the best club to do that at the time was a comedy cellar because it was relatively new. And Bill Grunfest, if I was on a roll or on a group, would let me go a little longer. Gotcha. I improvised there. I came up with many of my good bits back then kind of on stage, you know, improvised, the, like the skeleton, and then go back and rewrite it. So I was really making good progress. And then uh, November, I, I was on The Letterman Show. It was, it, was, it was great. Did you get any help from other comedians, uh, say maybe more famous comedians who saw you do your set and say, hey, you do the joke this way, or your peers, or did you not listen to other people and you just knew what you wanted and went straight ahead? I, you know, I always listen to other comedians, especially more experienced. Um, every now and then, said, "Hey, do you ever think of tweaking that?" But mostly, it was, "Hey, I like your stuff, good stuff." So mm-hmm. I got encouraged, and I was cast in 1984 by Lorne Michaels in the new show, which ran for 12 weeks. Right. So getting cast in that was huge. I worked with John Candy and Steve Martin and Gilda Radner. Uh, I had to give Steve Martin the longest straight line in comedy history. Which is? Uh, Sir, air defense is on the line. They've sighted unidentified missiles and are ready to launch a massive retaliatory strike. And his reply was, oh, neat, which got a huge (laughs) laugh. But in dress rehearsal, I froze. And then Martin was looking at me like, come on, you know, like, you didn't say it, but in his eyes, like, give me the fucking line. And, then, and I stopped, I go, all right, let's try it again. And then I read it off the cue card. And then for the next three hours before the actual aired show, I was just repeating that line over and over and over again. And when it came time to do it, I did it, it worked. And man, the pressure of that, uh, especially because I knew I was responsible for setting it up so Steve Martin could get that goofy laugh. And it worked. It's That's so why important. I still know the, the line to this day. I was wondering how you remembered it so well, but the, a good actor will remember all their lines. Or bad. You know, yeah. Sometimes bad, bad actors, actors will yeah. remember how, how the line didn't work. But it's, it's interesting because a lot of mistakes I, I believe that comics will make is they don't know when to be the straight man, like how important it is to be Dean Martin to Jerry Lewis or you know, with Abbott and Costello to, right. to be Bud Abbott. That's why I think back in vaudeville, I don't know if this is a myth, but... Straight men would get 60%. Mm. Did you ever hear that? I didn't hear that. Yeah. I, that's what I heard back in vaudeville. If, you, if there was a good straight man, 
he was very valuable. Like there were a lot of funny guys, but right. to set up the joke, to feed the, the guy with the punchline, you had to be really sharp. I've seen a lot of sitcoms go poorly because both leads want to be the funny person and no one sets up the, the joke. Yeah. Which yeah. is important. I remembered seeing you do stand up and I, I remember enjoying your stand up and I remember your first Letterman appearance and I remember all of that. But what I remember the most, because I went to school with a guy named Eddie Gordetsky, him and I were very close. We had a very similar voice quality. We did a radio show together. He wrote for Saturday Night Live, SCTV, and all the stuff. And he worked with you on a show that he told me to watch, which was the uh, uh, Night After Night. Right. It was on and the Comedy Channel, and then became, before it became Comedy Central, it was the Comedy. It was one Channel. of the shows that survived that segue. And you went opposite the Tonight Show. Yeah, Tonight yeah. Show, and Arsenio at the time. Right. And, uh, somebody else, I guess, Ted Koppel. Right, and Sue Wolf, I think, was working. Was she working on Sue that? Sue Fellows. Sue Fellows, that's right. Okay. Sue Wolf worked on my special. But, right. uh, yes, yeah, Sue I know Fellows produ produced it with Scott Carter. Right. My sidekick was Nick Bakai. Yes, who, who I'm still friends with all these years later. Yeah, he's the greatest. He's one of the funniest guys, comedian or not. So now you got the show. How did, how did you get the show? Did you do this? I remember there was a mass audition all over the country for people to create shows, and they were looking Jonathan Katz and Paula Poundstone at they, the time. They auditioned every comedian in New York. I know that. Right. Um, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want a talk show. Mm -hmm. I had no interest in it. My uh, comedy career was going well. I had uh, done a couple of movies, uh, so I was doing some acting, and I didn't want to get locked into one show and so I went in and I didn't give a crap mm. I was very you know I had funny stuff and uh, there's this uh, girl I knew I said I got to call my girlfriend I'm cheating on my girlfriend I got to call this girl get her on speakerphone yes the, the tub is ready okay babe you know just right. kind of and uh, Michael Fuchs saw it and said okay that's the late night guy so boom I you know I mean, I prepped for it, but I really didn't care. I really didn't want it, and I got it. So that I think that fun. happens in life where if you really want something so badly and you just tighten, you know, a defensive driver about it, you won't get it. But if you act like it works you don't against need it, you, it does work against you. Yeah. So I loved that show, and it was great. You had the audience of one. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Um, how much of the creativity was Sue and Eddie and, and Scott, uh, and how much did you get to put into that? Because well, it was uh, one of my favorite shows. To this day, you know, uh, Carson says the the show is the man behind the desk. So it was basically if I didn't want something on the show, it didn't get on. Mm -hmm. But I did have good producers, and it was you know, I up to then I'd been used to doing things on my own. But uh, you know, I learned a lot from doing that show. It was kind of a hard ass, but I had good writers. I had very good writers. Who wrote? Who were the other writers? Uh, Nick Bakai, John Averill, uh, right, Chris. Uh, damn, Sam and Chris. I forget their last names now. I haven't seen them in years. They're working on a hot in Cleveland. Right. Sam on. Johnson and Chris Darcel. Chris Marcel. Sorry, Chris. Okay. Chris Marcel. Real, uh, guys at a Harvard or Yale or, you mm -hmm. know, one of those Ivy League guys. That really funny stuff. And um, Dave Hansen, who also yes. played Dave the Weatherman. I remember So Dave I had really good writers. That's key. I did the monologue, the opening myself. I do that myself, but they did all the skits or the, you know, interstitial stuff and uh, wrote some brilliant stuff. Now, let and me ask you this, just to cut you off there, just about the monologue. You're writing a monologue every night. Yeah, but it wasn't like a typical comedy monologue because you only had an audience of one. Right. It was just basically talking points and jokes or observations I had made. And I, you know. Because that's yeoman's work to come up with material every day. That's why you need a great team around you. Absolutely. 
And sometimes I had nothing. Mm-hmm. And I had to get it together right before the show. Right. I remember John April, uh, my former roommate. And the reason I hired him, number one, he was a very funny writer, mm-hmm. very interesting writer. And I trusted him. And he knew me. He knew my sense of humor. And he grabbed me and he said, you got a job to do. And that you're absolutely right. You yeah. know, because I've heard that Carson, too. Johnny Carson, he did 60 Minutes with Freddie DeCordova uh, talking about sometimes Johnny... He just can't do the show today. Doesn't have it in him. Mm. But he'd get it together and do it. And growing up watching Tonight Show, you know, I took a train to Buffalo. I had the flu. I had to catch a cab. I got, I got right to the theater right before I'm going on, and I stub my toe. And then I go on, and, you know, you just have that energy. Or Bob Hope, Two Hours of Sleep, USO Show, thousands of soldiers out there. And as soon as uh, they introduced him, you know, the oh, lights yeah, went right on. Right before this interview, I was sound asleep. Then. Yeah. Yeah, you know that's how that works. Um, and speaking of Tonight Show and your show, when Johnny was finishing his last show, you took the night off, didn't you? Right. That was an idea from one of the producers. It might have been Pat Whitney, who was uh, actually our stage manager. Um, you decided, in, in, uh, in you know, in honor of Johnny, that you would not have anyone. We're just going to have a shot of the sh- uh, the set, empty chair. Right. You know, I, I, think I loved it. it. I, I loved the idea. I didn't commercial. see it, but just I heard about it. Just out of respect. And some guy uh, at Comedy Central who wasn't even a part of it, he was just the head of something, got a nice letter from Johnny Carson. You know, like that. Well, it wasn't Johnny's idea. It was a producer's <laughs> idea, you right. know. But it was out of respect. I thought it was a great idea, and that's what we did. And we got some press for that, too. You had to think about what guests you wanted to have on and what guests would evoke maybe press so you could get you know more viewers and stuff like that it was mm-hmm. it was a hustle and i was running out doing uh uh corporate shows to uh for the channel you know because it wasn't cable was in its infancy yes and uh these but were- i watched it i mean comics watched it you know we respected the show and then a situation came up where they were looking to replace david letterman in the late night spot on right. nbc and I remember, I think if I'm correct, you and Paul Provenza and John Stewart were three of the people that it got down to before Conan was chosen. It was, a, it was about eight guys. Okay. Uh, only the Truth is Funny. Who's that dude? Remember? Mm. He was up for it. I'm bad with names today. I, yeah, mean, I, I, I just I just shot this NYU student thesis film. Mm. And it was a great experience, but it was brutal. It took a lot out of me. Mm-hmm. Um but they put a showcase on at the Improv in Hollywood, and uh, Lauren flew out, and Eddie, uh, not, uh, who was his, uh, Brillstein. Yeah, Bernie Brillstein. Bernie Brillstein was there, and a bunch of people, and uh, we all went on, and at the end of the show, and Bob Odenkirk, I think, was at the table, uh. and told me since then, you know, they liked everybody, but Scott LaRose was the MC, and they said, what about Scott LaRose? Wow. So he wasn't even being, you know, in a, on the official list, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, of course, the famous story where they're all sitting around and Conan says, well, I got to leave here because I think I should do the show. And he walked out of the room. And there was a pause, and Lauren said, well, what about Conan? And then mm-hmm. I think that's how the wheel started for uh, Conan to get on the show. Yeah, but just... I don't think I was I – w- I was in the mix, but I don't think I was – on any short list. Mm. In my mind, I was saying, well, I know who the perfect host for that would be. And I thought, you know, the three names I mentioned were people I thought I saw host things. Right. And and it was Provenza, yourself, and Stewart. And I thought that was going to happen. And I really thought 
you know, I, I mean, I appreciate Conan and the work he's done and all the years he's put in, but I, what a different show would have been. He wasn't a stand-up. He no. Was, he had done improv and stuff. And, and, and he wrote was a, for Harvard. Yeah, and Harvard, yeah. And he was a you know, brilliant writer. man and a great guy. Uh, and it took him a while to get his footing because he wasn't a stand-up. Right. But right. He, he stuck it out and, you know, he, he did a good job. So... You know, and, all right. and there, going back to night after night, my last year there was a stipulation in my contract that if I missed a show, if I was sick, John Stewart would fill in. Ah. That was the healthiest year of my life because yeah. I knew yeah. John Stewart was good, was up and coming. He's going to be great, and he's not going to you know he's not going to host my show, but he'll have his own show. And I told him you're going to have your own show one day, and uh, I think he did. I think he did pretty yeah, well. Yeah, he did. He had an MTV show. Yeah. I know that, and uh, he was on. Uh, and then he the did first the Daily Show, I think. Before, before the Daily Show, the Daily Show was something. Did he the did Daily later Show? On. How did he do on that? Because I don't watch a lot of television. I didn't watch it every day. <laughs> <laughs> I watched the weekly version. I, well, see, this is what I love uh, about the business. When I was a young guy coming in, uh, my two favorite comedians were Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, mm. and they, I didn't, you know, I knew them individually and stuff like that. So then, when Seinfeld, the sitcom, came out and became the success. Made me happy. There are these two different guys, you know, uh, very different ways of doing stand-up. And John Stewart. I knew John Stewart. I said, this guy's good. Uh, you know, and even as a stand-up, he goes, he's not always hitting the mark. He wasn't, you know, a great stand-up yet. But no, there's, there's something about him I like. And then he turns into this iconic figure, you know. And that makes me so happy yes. when you see people like that. Like when I saw Stephen Wright. Yes. And, you know, and, and he was in New York, and I just saw his stand-up. I go, this guy is brilliant. If this guy doesn't get on TV, this this business is bullshit. And then three weeks later, I didn't know it, he was on uh, The Tonight Show. Right. And yeah. I, I just love that. Do you know that when he, they saw him for The Tonight Show, they weren't really seeing him. They were actually seeing a couple other comics. I think Steve Sweeney was one in Boston, a couple other comics, maybe Lenny Clark. And they loved Steven the most. You know, the other guys were great. But they love Stephen the most, and you know everyone said you're we you know said you're going to get the show, and uh, he said yeah right, and then he gets the call, and he thought it was one of us, calling him going you know putting a voice on. And it sounds like a Boston show. comic would do that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't play. You can't play. Yeah, you right. got the show. Yeah, yeah. It's a real pisser. Yeah. Hi, Steve. Yeah, this is the Bob. I'm in the Booker of the Tonight Show. Yeah. <laughs> The worst Boston actor. Yeah, that was pretty bad for for a young priest. The good actor is a young well. priest. So, um, so okay. What would you say was the break that that broke you? I mean, we know all these things along the way. Or is there, it a continuum? It, yeah, it's all a bunch of different breaks, and the breaks have to come every couple of years or so. Uh, just keeping visible in the business. Well, my HBO specials did really well. Very I was well. Nominated. Both times for uh, Cable Ace, Ace. Cable Ace Award, yeah. so I felt I'm in this game. And then after uh, Night After Night got canceled, it wasn't the ratings were going up. It was a political move. They had a new guy come in who's left, so that was a drag. What was political about it? Um, the ratings were going up. Uh, a new guy came in, and he wanted his agenda. Mm. And um, also they were padding the expenses of the show. They made it more expensive than it actually was. Uh. So, And then my mom had passed away like a year before the show went off the air, exactly a year. It was my last uh, show right. uh, my mom died. So I kind of went into a depression. The stuff I hadn't dealt with with my mom came in on top of losing the show. And uh, what did you do with that depression? Did you do more stand-up? Did you do I did more writing up. and inner 
uh, healing of some sort, or no, it wasn't that healthy. No healing. No, it was. It wasn't. I did my own healthy healing, which you. was fun. Yeah, but, but what it wasn't good for me. Yeah, me or probably be, the people around you. No, no, it wasn't right. good for them. But I moved to uh, L.A. I figured I'd slate all my dragons here, mm. except at Broadway. You know, that was right. my first goal when I came to New York. That's the only thing I haven't done. And I moved to L.A. And what year was that? Ninety-five. And then I did Seinfeld. I got a pop on Curb. I did Comedy World Radio, which What's was Comedy World Radio. I'm it was, uh, you know, during the dot com uh, heavy thing. We, we we were internet radio. It was I like see. this. It was right. this. I was on the first wave of what we're doing now, and that was good for a year. And then it went belly up. But uh, it, you know, every now and then I would get a break and get on TV just to keep my mug out there, let people know I wasn't dead yet. And at the age of forty four, it was kind of like, oh, it's over. I've had my shots. I'm not going to get to sitcom. And then I kind of pulled my head out of my ass very slowly because if you pull it out too fast, yeah. you get dizzy. And you make that popping sound. Yeah. <laughs> That's Nobody wants oh, that. God. So I just kind of stayed with it. I go, no, you have value. Just stay being a good comedian. I did Letterman spots. Right. As you know, my last Letterman, thank you. You helped me enormously. Yeah, you're always one of my favorite comics. You were always... Uh, favorite comics to comics, which is a you know most that's the ultimate thing for a comic. It's an honor. It yeah. really is. And uh, yeah, and comedians come up to me now. We're actors. I used to watch your old talk show. So now when you get older, I'm an elder statesman. Yeah, I'm the youngest of the old guys. I and think. these young guys want to make you laugh the way you wanted to make these other comedians laugh. It's Absolutely. just and you know, man, there's so many good comedians out there, Eddie. Yes. I work I look all the time for young comics still to this day. Because you booked that Nebraska gig. The, the festival there. Yeah. And, and also recommend people for comedy festivals around the world still, which is great. And I, you know, it's exciting how you know, there's always incredible artists out there. And you want to let them know the way, like guys like Kinnison and Schimmel and did for me when I was younger, John Mendoza, I want to be that guy for these other comics and let stop and say hey you're really funny you know don't stop what you're doing yeah so what no. i'm saying was is that you know you're running around you you go to la you're doing these totally different dynamic too i miss new york it took me a couple of years to get used to la and uh you know then i start getting a little acting work here and there mm -hmm. and uh the informant was huge yes uh working with soderbergh with uh, matt damon I have two friends, Brian Koppelman and David Levine. They're showrunners right. of Billions. Uh, they wrote Rounders. They got mm -hmm. me a small part yeah, in I that. Those guys that. have been my champions for years. I mean, you, it's good if you have one friend in the business that, uh, you know, goes to bat for you. I got two. I'm yeah. very lucky. And, and Soderbergh told me on the set of uh, The Informant, he goes, I just want you to know that, you know, Brian and David really wanted us to use you, they want, you know, and I said, "Well, that's not why you cast me." He goes, "No, no, no, no." But it just, <laughs> but it's good to know. Yes, it's really nice to know, and it's yeah. nice that Soderbergh told you that. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Soderbergh was great to work with, so that was fun being in that movie. And then I got the sitcom uh, Free Ride, right, on Fox. Uh, Rob Roy uh, Thomas did that, and that ran for six weeks, and we premiered after American Idol when it was, you know, twelve million viewers. Right. I think we had fifteen million viewers. And uh, but that didn't work out. Uh, but then uh, you, but you did, did a ton of movies in between, or not a ton, a not bunch. a ton. Yeah, I, enough, but nothing really popped. But the 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 next phase, the next big break came on Louis. Yes, and uh, Louis called me, 
And uh, he called me. He said, "Have we ever spoken on the phone?" I said, "No, we haven't." I go, "So let's relish this, you know." <laughs> and uh, he had a part, the part on Louis, which he actually wrote for another comedian. But the, other know, comedian you know the other comedian, yes, one. but I'm not going to say okay. the name. Okay. Um, and he said, "I'm full disclosure, I wrote, but I think he can do this part." And uh, he said, I want you to read it. Let me know. I said, okay. And I knew mm. I was going to do it. I didn't care what I had to do in it. Right. If I had to make out with, uh, you know, Louis, I, I was going to do I it. I understand. Didn't, you know, I've done it just to do it. Yeah, well, <laughs> we won't go. That's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but the, um, I knew the industry loved the show. And I knew the Mad Men people would probably watch the show. Mm. So I wore a cardigan. I got, you know, because Louis doesn't have, you just wear whatever you wear, and you know, I no makeup. That. And I Comb my hair, usually combed it straight back. I combed it a little bit to the side and wore a cardigan. And you knew the Mad Men people would watch the I, show? I, I, that was my feeling. I heard that. Uh, that uh, I know Scott Hornbacker. Yes. But not before this. I go, no, this is, this is my showcase for the industry because I did stand-up and I acted on it. So I knew this was a golden opportunity on Louie. And it, and it just opened a door and I got cast in The Office. I got cast in Up All Night, which mm-hmm. was one of their last episodes. Uh, because... Casting directors and producers and writers love Louie, love that yeah. show. So if I make a pop on this show, at least they now people know who I am. Gotcha. You know, now because a lot of young people come in, they don't know who you are. They weren't around in the 80s, you know. Yeah. And that was huge. And then uh, I've been bugging my manager for, you know, five seasons to get me in Mad Men. And I auditioned once for, to play a doctor mm-hmm. in season two and it didn't work out. But it was fine. And uh, and then I auditioned, got the part, got that episode. Lou. Great. Yes. Great. That's one only episode, powerful. One episode, fantastic. And then uh, a couple months later, my manager goes, they want you uh, to come back. And and I had two lines, four words, mm-hmm. and it was like St. Don Draper going down. And that was huge. Yes. Now, didn't hear from them. They, I don't think they knew they were going to continue my character. And then in season seven, I'm the guy that takes over for Don Draper. Yes. They wrote this terrific character. And, and you're uh, the nastiest guy. You were voted the, the, the meanest. Uh, right? Yeah, what, the, the, the meanest boss, the worst boss ever. in television. In yeah, television. people hated me. And they didn't love to hate me. They hated me. Yeah. The comments and stuff. And I remember before I started uh, doing it, I said to Matt Weiner, so this guy's oh, like a real dick. <laughs> and, and Matt goes, no, no, no. He's the greatest guy in the world. He's a great businessman. Everybody loves Lou. That's, you know, it was the best direction he could have ever put me in. And that made all sense in the world. And, of course, the writing was great and the direction was clear. The other actors are so solid. And it was my favorite show. So you could have told me at five years old I was going to be in The Honeymooners. Right. I wouldn't have been more excited. That's how excited I was. And that's what I love, that I can still get excited about this business. Right. You know, I loved Mad Men. And now I'm going to be on it? Yes. That's, uh, that's crazy. And how did that part grow? Or did they just decide, well, there's, uh, did people say, we hate this guy so much, we want him back? Or did just, I, I don't you know. have no I, idea? I don't, and I wouldn't ask them. Right. I, you know, why'd you cast me in this? Because <laughs> yeah, then they start yeah. thinking, why yeah, did why, we yeah, kiss? This you is know? not what we originally planned. And can you get us a coffee? Yeah. yeah. I, oh, man, I went on, kept my mouth shut, did the part. I, you know, I knew my lines. I just, I was just so happy yes. and excited and nervous. The day before, you know, and you can't tell anybody. Okay. You can't. They, this they is have between me. you and I. Yeah. No, no, no. no, no I, know, I, I know exactly. They, I know what we're talking. Yeah. This is not <laughs> going to leave this the studio. Not going to leave this room. No, but before you go on, they have a non-disclosure 
that is very serious. And Matt Weinerford would say, if you tell anybody, you will be replaced. We will reshoot. Right. Because uh, the secret of uh, the, the market value of the show is keeping it quiet. So I didn't tell anybody. But the, uh, when I was auditioning to play Lou, because I, I had to re-audition. He wanted, mm. Matt Weiner wanted to make sure I could handle... Uh, More than two lines. Yeah, or and a complex scene. or uh, And so I was going into re-audition in a way. And I couldn't walk that morning. Mm. The, the lines I had, but I could not walk. I went to Starbucks. I was walking, crying. Not like bawling, but like tears coming down. Jeez. Emotions. I can't, I can't blow this. If I go in and say, you know, that was good, but we're going to go with somebody else. I, I would have killed myself. It was here I'm glad I had that this didn't golden, work out that way. Oh man. Oh baby. Yeah. So I I cheated. I can say this now. They can't, can't, I called Brian and David. Right. My my rabbis now. Right. You know. And uh, it wasn't Yom Kippur, so they were able no, to answer yeah, the phone. And I'm not Jewish. Right. Yes, thank you. So and they talked to me for two and three minutes and when I hung up that phone, I was full of confidence and I was fine. I'm because gonna... you can't go in being inside your head. That's what, what uh, comedians and actors, I think, make a mistake. Because you can rationalize anything in your head, but it's your gut. It's When I hear Nina Simone sing, that's what I think about, how I have to be as a comedian or I have to be as a performer or who I have to... Like, I see a young comic who is just starting out, but they have that Nina Simone thing going where it's just soulful... That's when I know the difference of a great comedian and, and a comedian who has... It doesn't mean other comedians don't have a chance to get that, but when I see that, I know that they're ready to to take it to the next level and will understand that. And that was why that call was important, because these people oh. took you out of your head and said, just go in there and, and knock it out of the park. This is what you do. This is what you wanted as a kid. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be on Broadway. And it worked in your favor. Yeah, but you can want that and, and still... So when it comes, you get that opportunity, you can freeze up. Yeah. So it's just being relaxed and being in touch with your song, mm-hmm. like in Nina yeah. Simone thing, instead of and uh, I, it it went great. I got the part and you know. Yeah. I did. Wound up doing eleven episodes. I know. I, I loved that show, and then all of a sudden, my friends on it. You know, it just it, and like you said, I was so you're so excited. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, comedy is very uh, competitive and, and must be really hard. And then you're up against other people. And I always say, no, I'm up against myself to just be the best myself. Yeah, you're, there's only one person on stage at the time. Right. You know, so, and the, the great thing, too, the aftermath of this is that people were genuinely happy for me. Yes. You know, and that's it really means a lot to me. Now, let me ask you this. For, for young comedians now who, you know, I want the reason why... I chose to sort of like, how'd you get your breaks and this kind of a thing? Because a lot of comedians don't know that it's a process that, you know, it might take six years, it might take eight years, it might take one, or you might be Chappelle and just knock it out of the park from day one. But, uh, but even Chappelle had to work it. Yeah. You know, you have to write as much as you can. All the time. Trust yourself. Even if you have to, you seek your own counsel. Ultimately, yes, you can run material by someone. Trust yourself and keep working it. Because you can look in the mirror and do it. You just got to do it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't look in the mirror. Because once you look in the mirror, you're not doing it. No, you're, you're watching yourself trying to do it. Here's what I did: I would uh, talk my set into a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Then I would play it back when I was soaking in a hot tub, very slowly. And, and you were soaking I, slowly, or you'd listen to it. Everything slowly. was very slow. Gotcha. You know, Seinfeld told me, and, and he's probably told many people this: uh, when you're on stage, if you think you're going too slow. Slow down. Yes, I told that to Louis when I 
was getting him ready once for a set. And then use that with every comedian that ever did Letterman as, uh, you, you know, the sort of advice that Seinfeld had given. Gave every comic said, if you think you're going to do it too slow, slow down. And it really helped a lot of people. My last Letterman that you helped me prep for, invaluable uh, advice from you, uh, I, you know, I knew to slow down. It was the slowest set I've ever had, and I think the most effective. Yeah, because you were there's a confidence in taking your time as opposed to rushing. There's a confidence in and there, there's such so much nonverbal communication in a comedy set when people are sitting at the table with you and they go, "Hey, do one of your jokes." It doesn't work as well. No. Because there's that nonverbal stuff and the standing. The other thing and Letterman made people do was wear a lavalier because he wanted people not to hold on to the mic. They, he wanted to be, you know, everyone to be able to really be involved from the top of your head to the tip of your toes while you're on stage. And because you're a great actor, you were able to use all this nonverbal, and I think that's why, I believe that's why your set was so powerful the last time you did Letterman. Yeah, and I, and I was canceled a few times, so I had really yeah. worked the material. You can't work the material enough. Some people know, you know, Seinfeld had, he wouldn't work it as much. He, was, he told Larry Miller, don't overwork the set. But I would work my set over yeah. and over again. Yeah, I don't. Different people, different You can't methods. overwork it, but yeah, everybody has their own pr approach. But if you're a young comic, trust yourself, go up anywhere. You're going to have right. to eat shit for a while. Too bad. Yeah. And you get to a point where you're funny, that's not your call. That's mm -hmm. the audience's call. That's other comedians' call. I hear comedians say, hey, I'm a brilliant comic. I'm a yeah. funny guy. Not your call. Yeah. People say, are you funny? The, to me, I go, I, I'm the wrong guy to ask. Right. You know, ask people who see me, ask people who've known me. It's not your call. It's All right, but how about this theory that uh, you're not here to please the audience? You know, we're not here to please you. I'm here to do what I do. Say, Bill Hicks or Richard Pryor, I'm doing what I do, and if you like it, great, and if you don't like it, you know, somebody else will. Do you like that theory? Yeah, or? to a certain extent. You do have a responsibility to the audience. Yes. Um, but it you cannot give them, uh, and what's the word, the responsibility of your set. You cannot mm. make them, listen, if I don't laugh, this guy's not going to be successful. I'm here to, I'm here to talk to you, to tell jokes, or talk about stories, and if you laugh, great. If you don't laugh, that sucks, but I'm moving on. And in no. a television set, it's much different because in a television set, you're not following other comics. No. You're, you have your own section. And sometimes the audience doesn't know who you are or has never seen your set, and they want you to do well. So your first laugh has to come, doesn't have to, but should come within the first 15 seconds so that the audience can sit back and go, okay, this person is, is good, and they're going to make me laugh. I can relax now. Or they, if they come out and look nervous. I mean, if yeah. you've ever seen a comedian bomb on TV, it's brutal. Yeah. You feel horrible. It's the exact opposite of what you should do. Yeah. Oh, we saw this horrible, horrible comedian. He bombed your... You know, I've watched comedians at home, and my palms get sweaty mm -hmm. when they're bombing. Yes. You know, it's, it's just no fun. And this is before I got into stand-up. So when it, you come out, though, those first 15 seconds, whatever you're saying, this guy, this person looks comfortable. This person owns their space. And that's what they want you to do. It's really hard to be yourself. It's really hard to be comfortable. Yeah. Well, Jack Benny showed us all to, he got his biggest laughs on pauses. Mm -hmm. So he used the silence as a musical note, as, which was as musical as the words that he used as well. And something I've learned the last 10 years is like pausing after I get a laugh and just kind of looking out. 
I'm not pretending anything. I'm just right. They're still looking at you while they're laughing, yeah, you know. Yeah. And you can really <laughs> get a little more out of a laugh with just a, a very tiny look. Yes, you know. Well, that's yeah. the whole thing again about television. It's a very small screen, and you, they could see your eyebrows. Not anymore. Raise. Yeah, and then not in our house. Yeah. yeah. No, but yes, you're right. They're right on top of you. That's really great. Any regrets in in your oh, career? Oh, yeah. Ton? Oh, yeah. Not, not a ton. But the way I, you said it. See. Well, yeah, no. I mean, there are things I've said to people I shouldn't have said. Mm-hmm. There are ways I've behaved I shouldn't have behaved. Um, yeah, but I. I but overall, the best move was from Miami to New York. Mm-hmm. That was the best move. If I didn't buy my apartment, was you know that kind of right. thing, or I should have bought that stock, or boy, I lost that girl. I shouldn't have lost that girl. I don't have uh, big ones, but when I moved here, it was that's it. You know, I'm not at home working some job I I kind of don't like watching comedians on TV saying, oh, I should have, would have. I'd never have to say that. I should have, would have. I should have gotten a comedy. I should have gotten an acting. You know, I'm in it, and I, I'm just so grateful that I made that, that bold move. When everybody, this is a 78, nobody was encouraging me. They wished me luck. They threw me a party. Mm-hmm. They were nice. My mm-hmm. peers in college did, but my parents and their friends, they, they looked at me like I was out of my mind, you know. And it wasn't like today when people are much more savvy about show business and they want to get into it, and it's an, it's, it's an option at least. It's a legitimate option now. It wasn't back then. When you were at a party in the early 80s or, and you told someone uh, you're a comedian, they'd just look at you like, what? Yeah, well, yeah. what else do you do? That's yeah. what they wanted to know. Yeah. What, you know. What can you fall back on? Yeah. But now I would guess, because I know myself, that it doesn't matter what you do as far as acting, as far as anything you've done, you're still going to keep doing stand-up. I'm going to do stand-up for another six years. Really? You have a Seven number? Seven years, yeah. Yeah, I want to do Why six? 40 years. I it'll see. Be, it'll be 40 years as a professional. I want to see where else my creative juices will go, maybe in a writing. I just did this NYU student film. Right. I learned how to play the ukulele. Yeah. I had to sing for it. Now, I don't want to be a singer, but it was just it was interesting being out of my comfort zone. I've always enjoyed writing, uh, screenplays and short pieces. I don't do it enough. Um, and I don't want to be an old guy on a cruise ship. Right. You know, but I don't want to be a young guy on a cruise ship. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's better to be on dry Although, land. Although, you know, if they'd send me to the South Pacific and uh, I, yeah, the, I still don't want to do it. The money's good, I'll do it. Yeah. You know. I understand. Um, when you write, when you write stand-up comedy, not when you write this other stuff. Right. What's your process? Uh yellow legal pad mm-hmm. and sit down ah, my yellow just, legal pad and just start thinking and I take little notes little observations I see well, where, I can, where can I go with that or I have this bit this works what could follow that what is along that same theme other night I was coming back from the cellar and I right before I went to sleep I thought of this joke and I wrote it down and okay and then mm-hmm. went to bed I, I did it worked perfectly that rarely happens. Really, really. It worked perfectly. It was, you know, set up a couple lines and then a punchline, and it worked great. So that's, you know, that's fun when that happens. That doesn't happen that often. Because writing, you can write for Twitter or write for Facebook or write for the, the spoken word, and uh, not the spoken word, the, the written word, and there's a different rhythm sometimes. But stand-up, you have to also write the pauses. You have to also write the, the parts that are not on paper. And you have to know that. Would you, I, I think I know the answer, would you, do you write on stage a lot? 
Yeah, I use yes. Yeah. And how does that happen for you? It just comes up. It just it just you, you know, you trust yourself like if I work with a crowd and stuff like that and things come up, it's really it's all there. They give it to you. Yeah. It's it, it's all there. And people say, uh, how can how how do you do that? How can you It's like doing it. I've been doing it 33 years professionally. Right. It just takes time. You really got to give yourself time. You know, my dad, when he was, he was a drummer when he was a young guy mm. in college. Not professionally, but he, was, he liked the drums. Yeah. He saw Buddy Rich, and he said, I wanted to come home and kick my drums in. Right. Well, yes, of course, if you see the very <laughs> best, you know, you're just starting out, you're going to be discouraged. Uh, let it encourage you, if anything, you know. But you're, you know, for young comedians, they say, you know, if you have this instinct, then follow that instinct. Play it out. Because... Many reasons to quit. Many reasons to walk away. You're going to have bad sets, and no one's going to no one's going to follow you home. Go, hey, where where are you? Get yeah. back in the club. Nobody get cares. No. You have to care about yourself and your career more than anybody, because no one's going to really care. Do you think helping other comics or giving comics lines helps you in your work? Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if there's a comedian that tells a joke and I and they know me well enough, I said, hey, did you ever think of putting that in there? Um, mm-hmm. it, it, does it help me? Uh, yeah, I, it's always good to give. Yeah. You know, Manny Dorman, who uh, right, started the, the uh, comedy seller, yeah. the late great Menachem Dorman had a saying, very simple, you give good, you get good. I, that works. I know it's corny, uh, but it does corn, work. Corn works. You know, when we were kids and they go, you have a bad attitude? I heard that. They never get, give us the tools. <laughs> yeah. say, here's how you change your attitude. Here's what a good attitude does. It really helps to have a healthy attitude, a helpful attitude, and to realize that you're not the only comedian in the world. A lot of comedians out there. And uh, it's a great, it's a great life. I embraced it all. Going on the road, fantastic. Hotel, cool. You know? So the the road, I just kind of like every aspect of it. I love auditioning. I like getting the part. We all like it when they say yes. yes. And then I like to go and go over the, you know, meet the other people. It's just the whole process is fun. And you're with this family, and then you're gone. What would you like to do that you haven't done yet? Broadway. I, okay. Like to still want to do Broadway? Yeah. How are you going to make that work for you? Uh, I'm going to, you know, I come back to New York occasionally. Mm-hmm. These uh, NYU uh, students just saw me and cast me in this film. That's the way it happens. People see you, or they see you on TV or something, or. Uh, maybe I'll come back and spend more time in New York. I would love to make that work. Uh, but right now, I'm just putting it out there. You know, I have it in my head. I've had that dream for a while. So what happens? I've met many heroes effortlessly. Just run into them or got lucky. or It's, it's, it's work, perseverance, luck, talent is the last thing. And you know what's interesting about the heroes? They had to do it, just like you just said, to become who they became. So to see them, you know... Buddy Rich did, you know, definitely had the natural talent, but he, he had some talent. But he, but he, he had worked to work at, at it. it. Worked at it. Yes. You know, uh, yeah. Barbara Streisand is a unique talent. She's right. a beautiful voice. But look at Adele. Right. And at the Grammy Awards, she hit some flat notes. It's, it, you know, it, it doesn't. Happens. Yeah, you have to work it, and you have to stay on top of your game. And even with everything, you can prepare everything. And it can fall flat sometimes. It's just the way it happens. I know. I, I've always admired your comedy. I'm 
proud well, thank that you. Uh, proud that I can consider you a friend. Because I appreciate I, uh, that. Yeah, I, same I, here, I, man. I, it's yeah. good to see you. Same here. Thanks it's for nice you have podcasts. That's when I see all my friends. Yeah, that's yeah. the way to do it. Because when you headline, somebody else is headlining. Uh, I got a call from Harlan Williams. What are you doing this weekend? I'm doing some other club, so I can't see you this weekend. Right. So we, the only way to do it is either do festivals or come and join us in a podcast. And we can't thank any, you enough. Anytime, man. All right, anytime. brother. All right, Alan Havey, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>